If you're like most men in our audience, you're committed to becoming the man, husband, father, and leader God called and created you to be. But the truth of the matter is, you struggle with either finding the time or knowing where to start. That's exactly why I created the Real Men Spiritual Leader Blueprint to give you a step-by-step, easy-to-follow guide to spiritually leading your family, even if you're a new believer. Now, you can't buy the Real Men Spiritual Leader Blueprint, but you can get it for free by signing up for our free e-newsletter. By signing up, you will be notified anytime fresh content is added to my site, so you don't always have to visit my blog to stay up-to-date on the latest information. Now, to get your free copy of the Real Men Spiritual Leader Blueprint, just visit realmenconnect.com and simply enter your name and email address on the form on the page. So if you're tired of trying to figure it all out and fit it all in as the spiritual leader, provider, and protector of your family, don't miss your chance to discover how to be the man God called and created you to be. Sign up today at realmenconnect.com. Welcome to Real Men Connect. Are you ready to be the extraordinary man, husband, father, and leader God called and created you to be? Then get ready to receive wisdom and guidance from some of the country's most respected men of faith as you learn everything you need to know to go from good man to great man God's way. No judgment, no shame. Just real men with real challenges seeking real change. All for God's glory. Hello, mighty men of God, and welcome to the Real Men Connect podcast, where we help good men become great men God's way. I'm your host, Dr. Joe Martin, and every week we interview some of the nation's most respected and accomplished men of faith to find out what it really takes to become the kind of husband, father, and spiritual leader God called and created us to be. Each interview session is packed with practical, proven biblical principles you can immediately apply in your relationships, on your job, and in your community. Today, we have with us Chris Broussard, who is the founder and president of the Christian men's movement called KING, K-I-N-G, which stands for Knowledge, Inspiration, and Nurture Through God. And it's an organization designed to empower men to reach their God-given potential in every realm of life through the power and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. But you guys, Chris is probably more famously known to you for being a sports analyst and award-winning journalist for Fox Sports 1. And prior to joining Fox Sports, Chris was an analyst for ESPN, a senior writer for ESPN the magazine and ESPN.com, and he specialized in covering the NBA. And Chris experiences growing up in multicultural environments and his enthusiasm and respect for youth and young adult culture gives Chris a unique ability to connect with listeners of all ages and races. Now, I had the pleasure of meeting Chris through a mutual friend of ours, Pastor Jerome Carter, who introduced us by, I believe it was probably last year. And Chris invited me to be one of his session speakers at his annual King Summit in Memphis, Tennessee, where men from all over the country gather so they can be equipped to become better husbands, fathers, and spiritual leaders. And I asked Chris to be on the Real Men Connect podcast today to talk to us about a very sensitive but necessary topic, and that's diversity in men's ministry, or should I say a lack of diversity in men's ministry in the body of Christ. And I can't wait, because Chris and I are kind of cut from the same cloth when it comes to this topic. We've been able to successfully cross and bridge ethnic and cultural barriers when it comes to men's ministry, whereas most ministries seem to struggle. So I asked Chris to be on the show today so we can have a real discussion about this topic and hopefully come up with some real solutions that we all can implement as men of God so we can turn this thing around. So that being said, I want to welcome my friend Chris to the show. And Chris, thanks for joining us on the Real Men Connect podcast, brother. Hey, man, it's my pleasure to be on with you. Uh, I'm really excited about joining the show. And Chris, so am I, man. When we're talking about I mentioned that we talk about a topic that um, is very sensitive, but it's important. And we don't have a lot of people talking about this, whether it be in the churches or whether it be on podcasts like this. And even when they do, they tend, they tend to get in their emotions about it and they get their feeling about it. And so everybody has kind of like a deep rooted emotions when it comes to this. So I'm not saying that we're going to come up with all the answers, but based on your success in ministry, my success in ministry, where we've been able to have a very diverse audience and reach people from all from across the aisles, I think this is going to be a blessing to the men. Don't you agree? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm uh, I'm excited. Like you said, it's it's a topic that needs to be discussed. And uh, the church has actually been, believe it or not, um, kind of behind the world in this regard. So which is shame uh, and actually uh, it's a it's a negative mark against the church in America. 
But uh, it's something we have to change. And see, and, and you're getting ahead of me, Chris. That's exactly because that's what kind of I think bothers me about it is that we should be in the forefront of showing of showing the community and showing society how we um, our faith can bridge gaps. But yet it just does the opposite. But I'm getting ahead of myself. But Chris, before we begin, I always ask men when they come on our show to share with us their favorite Bible verse that gives them inspiration from the word of God and, and kind of is their anchor verse, even for the season that they're in in their life. What's yours, man? Yeah, I'm glad you said for the season in your life, because, you know, obviously we love all the scripture. I don't really have one favorite one. Um, I just, you know, there during, during different seasons of my life, there's one that ministers more to me. Um, I, I would say there's a several going through my mind um, right now. Like overall, I've always loved Ephesians, th- Ephesians 320 which is God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think according to the power that works in us. Um, But for this season of my life, I'd say Ecclesiastes 12 verse 13 is one that's really God's really been ministering to me about, which is now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the duty of all mankind. And, you know, a lot of times, even in the church today, you know, we hear so many messages about your purpose and, you know, what your specific purpose is on earth and whether it's to be a journalist or a minister or, you know, an entrepreneur or whatever it might be, a missionary. Um, and And those are great messages. That's very important. But I think sometimes we can get away from just the hardcore essence of our duty as men or and as human beings is simply fear God and keep his commandments. Amen. And sometimes we can think because we're doing so many other things for God um, or that we think are for God, we can uh, we may not be keeping his commandments or even trying in some respects. Um, and we think we're OK. And so that scripture, I just think that's a scripture that we all need to really look at uh, in this day and age and understand, look, fear God and keep his commandments. That's the duty of all mankind. Wow. Amen. And Chris, that's a great verse. And, and you're, you're right on with that, too, is that we we try to make even though God is hard to understand, he doesn't make obeying him complicated. His word is plain and simple. And you're right. If we fear God and keep his commandments, that was that is what pleases him. He 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 honors obedience over sacrifice. And so um, I, I love that. Now, Chris, um, before we get into talking about this topic about um, diversity in men's ministry and in the church in general, um, I want you to give us the for a, a, excuse the pun, an ESPN version of your story. <laughs> uh, tell us a little bit about um, how. You what motivated you to launch the King movement? Because obviously you're in sports and you deal with um, the NBA and that kind of thing. But something in your heart pulled you towards doing launching the King movement. So tell us a little bit about your personal story and how you got involved in targeting men and men's ministry. Well, for me, I um, I was raised Catholic, so I was not raised in biblical Christianity, Um, but I became a Christian my senior year in college um, at Oberlin College, 1989. And that's when I actually gave my life to the Lord on my 21st birthday. Uh, So my natural birthday is the same as my spiritual birthday. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I did not know I was a senior in college. And even, you know, right after I graduated, I did not know a lot of men who were living for Christ. I knew a lot of men that went to church college teammates. I played basketball in college, college teammates and stuff that went to church, but I didn't know a lot that were living for the Lord. And so I kind of, you know, as I was basically changing my lifestyle as a Christian and not doing some of the things I used to do, um, I was kind of longing for, I found myself longing for that, those types of relationships with men, friendships and things like that. Um, with guys that were Christians and it didn't have to be all about God, but guys that I could relate to culturally, 
in terms of sports, in terms of music, whatever it might be, but who also love the Lord. And so in my time with them, even if we weren't talking about the Lord, they wouldn't be pushing me away from the Lord or encouraging me to do some things that were ungodly. So um, as I began to meet more and more Christian men who were like my age, I was 21 years old. Um, you know, I began to see that a lot of them were in similar situations and they were kind of isolated, even if they went to good churches. Um, sometimes maybe the men in the church are older or they're married and, you know, they, they just didn't relate to them uh, in terms of other things outside of Christ. So that's what initially put the thought in my mind about uh, putting together something like the King Movement, where it could be like a brotherhood that provided men with the support system that they needed, but do it organically, not anything formal, but just provided them with an organic support system and also encouragement and accountability uh, to help us live out our faith Monday through Saturday, because I saw a lot of men uh, who at one time were on fire for the Lord. I saw them, you know, fall away or backslide or whatever. And a lot of times it was because they really didn't have men their age that they could relate to who were in the Lord. So they'd hang out with their old friends. And there's nothing wrong with that, of course. But a lot of times you can hang out with your old friends and you get drawn back into the world. And so that's what was happening with a lot of them. And so uh, that that was one of the things that really sparked me to to want to start the King movement. All right. Now, but you say that, you, you know, you grew up Catholic and this it comes down when you getting ready to celebrate your 21st birthday and you decide to um, to dedicate your life to Christ. But what was the, the turn? What was the catalyst for you to say, hey, um, I'm going to go away against what I've been taught and what I've been raised with to pursue Christianity? What was the turning point for you? Because obviously you say there weren't a lot of men around there who were walking this thing out in front of you. So what was the catalyst for you? I, um, I met uh, started dating a woman who actually now is my wife. Um, she was, we, we were at college together and she was two years ahead of me. Um, so she was a senior. I was a sophomore and I knew her and she was a known around campus as a born again Christian and, you know, living a certain lifestyle that a lot of college kids weren't living, including me. And so we started dating and she was really the first person to expose me to biblical Christianity, you know, she would want to pray. So we would pray because, you know, I, when we pray together, I was always open to that because as a Catholic, I would pray. But I noticed when she would pray, she was praying to God like she actually knew God. <laughs> right. She had a relationship with <laughs> yeah. you know, like father or friend. And all I prayed was memorized prayers. You know, Hail Mary, for the grace of the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. You know, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Just the the, minim- the prayers I had memorized as a kid that I've been taught in the Catholic Church. And so that struck me like, man, she's got something that I really don't have. And then, you know, I, I went to Bible study with her and, you know, things like that. So that kind of exposed me to, uh, like I said, biblical Christianity. And then one year we had been dating for about a year. And, um, it was, it was great, but it was also a struggle because she was trying to, you know, live for the Lord and I wasn't. And so, you know, I would drag her into sin and we'd backslide, you know, she'd backslide and it just, you know, it was, it was just a constant struggle, especially for her. And, um, so we went to a church that we had been to once before and they had a guest speaker. It was a charismatic church. And the first thing that struck me was just the excitement and exuberance of the people. And, you know, they were praising God and, and really excited to be in church. And um, I had never really seen that growing up Catholic. Um, you know, church was always very solemn and uh, something I just was counting down the minutes until it was over. So to see people excited about church that was something unique. Uh, and then they had a guest speaker that day who uh, gave his testimony. And he talked about how he had been in New York City um, as, as a teenager. He was a drug addict. And, you know, 
out on the streets. He had run away from home. He was out on the streets and he gave his life to Christ. And it changed, you know, changed his life, set him free from the addiction. And, you know, the rest was history. And um, so that for some reason, his message and just the church, the experience that day at church really struck me. And um, that was the first time I say that I was really convicted of my sin and the fact that I knew like I wasn't my lifestyle wasn't pleasing to God. And I wasn't you know, I wasn't I was a good kid by the world standards. I mean, I got good grades, was never involved with gangs, um, didn't do drugs, didn't sell drugs. But, I, you know, I was womanizer and fornicator and um, getting drunk a lot. And uh, in the fraternity, haze pledges and things like that. Um, and so I, that was the first day I really realized, you know, my lifestyle is not pleasing to God. And um, if I died, uh, I willing I wasn't going to go to heaven. I was going to go to hell and deserve it because I, I knew it's, I was taught his commandments and things. And I was just willfully being my own Lord rather than Jesus be my Lord. So that day when the uh, pastor gave the altar call, I, uh, I knew it was like, I felt like he was talking directly to me. And I felt like everybody in that church was looking at me like, you need to go down. You, you right there. You need to <laughs> and I literally was praying, Lord, don't let this man come and take <laughs> my seat. And so I didn't go down. But I remember leaving the church that day, taking a few tracks with me, one of them about like what God says about sex, because I didn't want to give up premarital sex and things like that. And um, so I remember reading the tracks. It, believe it or not, uh, not to get off on a tangent, but I remember mm-hmm. sitting there uh, laying my, my I was at my girlfriend's apartment and she was studying because she was in medical school. So she was studying in the back room. And I was watching, I was in the living room watching the Cleveland Cavaliers, Chicago Bulls, game five, uh, 1988, I believe, or was it might have been 80, no, 80, 89, I think. And uh, it was when Michael Jordan hit what's known as the shot. Oh, over, oh, over Craig Elo. <laughs> so I'm, I'm watching that and I'm torn because I'm from Cleveland. So I'm like pulling for the calves. But I love Michael Jordan and I wanted to keep watching him play in the next round. And while I'm watching the game, I'm also reading this track, you know, about fornication and how sinful and all that stuff. And so, um, but like I said, I didn't want to give my life to the Lord. I didn't want to repent. You know, I didn't. I knew I didn't have to be perfect, but I didn't even want to try to live by God's commandments. So uh, I was back up in school and I kind of just kept doing my thing. And that summer, God still blessed me with a summer internship at the Cleveland Plain Dealer newspaper, which was the biggest newspaper in Ohio at the time. And uh, I was blessed to do well that summer. And at the toward the end of the internship, they told me they were going to give me they were going to hire me when I graduated. So I was heading into my senior year of college and they were like, you know, we thought you did a great job. So we're going to hire you when you graduate next year. So you can imagine as a, you know, about to be a senior in college to know that you have a job, a good job that you'll enjoy, that pays well when you graduate. I mean, that was just you don't get any better than that. You know, so I was just on cloud nine and um for that lasted for a few days. And then I began to feel like, OK, I got the American dream now it, within my grasp. And my whole life I had been raised to pursue the American dream, you know, get good grades so you can go to a good college so you can get a good job. Like that was the purpose of life, you know. And um, and here I was now with that finally that american dream within my grasp like okay i I got it when i graduate i'm gonna have it and um i began to really be overwhelmed with this feeling of is that it is that all life's about um and is this all there is and um 
in feeling that way, it got to a point where I really was was miserable because I felt like, man, I got, you know, I wasn't rich or anything like that. But I was like, I got what I got the American dream. I got what I've been told life is all about. You know, I got, you know, everything is, is going great. And yet I still feel empty. And and I knew it was Christ, you know, but again, I was looking for every loophole I could find, man, to to not give my life to Christ and to fill that void. And um, finally, on my 21st, so I went up to college and, you know, was just still running from the Lord. And then uh, in October, uh, October 28th, which was my birthday, I remember uh, my parents were taking me and my girlfriend out to dinner. It was supposed to be my first, you know, I was turning 21, supposed to be my first glass of wine and all that stuff. And uh, so before we went out, uh, my dad and I went out to run some errands. And uh, I asked my, I was asking my father, I was saying, I said, so what, I said, what keeps you motivated in life? Like once you have, you know, a nice, good job, nice house, nice cars, your, your kids are doing well. My, I, my brother, he was in college at Howard University. I was doing well in school. I said, once you get all that, what keeps you going? And he said, you know, well, you want, you know, a bigger house or you want to get a promotion, <laughs> right? a nicer car or, <laughs> you know, make more money for your family or even, you know, make more money to help other people. Yeah, everything he said, it wasn't bad stuff, but I knew None of that was going to fill this void, this emptiness that I felt inside. So I was just really, man, God broke me down to the point where I had two choices. One, I could either keep running from God and be miserable or I could give my life to Christ and get some joy and some peace and fill up that void. So that 21st birthday, you know, you, you make a wish over the cake. I uh, instead of making a wish, I prayed inside. I prayed, you know, I gave my life to Christ and I asked, accepted Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior and asked him to fill me with the Holy Spirit. And that was it, man. That was the beginning. <laughs> you know, and Chris, what you describe is we had a guest um, by the name of Adam North, um, good friend of mine um, who runs a discipleship groups um, across the country. And he says what he describes, what you're describing, he describes as that cross shaped hole in your heart that we try to fill with everything else but the cross. And that's what and yeah, your dad had those answers for you, but that wasn't filling that hole. <laughs> so, you know, cause so I'm, I'm glad you shared your story with us, man. That, that is, that is great. You know, but I told you, I brought you on here, man. We're going to talk about this diversity issue in the church. And I know that it's not a popular topic. You know, but it's a necessary topic. And if God has given me a platform to be able to, to bring it up to, to the forefront, I'm going to do it. And likewise with you, he's given you a platform, not only in ministry, but also in the NBA um, and in sports and being a report and analyst to be able to um, to share this with the world as well. But um, most men, they attend one church and they don't get a chance to visit other churches of different ethnic groups, age groups, denominations, etc., um, but because of um, your ministry, because of my ministry, we get a chance to visit and speak at churches that are much different than the ones either we belong to or <laughs> grew up with. And so I think that we both have a lot of insight. And I know you definitely do on what you can share with us today. And they say that churches are the most segregated places in America on Sunday mornings. Why do you think, in your humble opinion, why do you think that's the case, Chris? Well, I mean, historically, it's the case because, you know, the racism in America. I mean, you can go back to the foundation of the first, uh, quote unquote, black church. It was the AME Church, African Methodist Episcopal Church, founded by Richard Allen. And the reason that they founded the AME Church, like when Richard Allen was, he was a Christian. He had been a slave and he got saved and you know, he, he began attending just a, a, a white church, you know, a Methodist Episcopal church. And uh, some of the black members of the church were praying at the church. Uh, this is, of course, in the 18, uh, 18th century, I believe. 
or maybe the 19th century, but it was during slavery. Um, and they were praying at the altar, the black members, and some of the white members came and told them to get up and go up and sit in the balcony. And um, he was like, well, we'll, you know, okay, we'll, we'll go sit in the balcony, but let us finish praying. And they wouldn't let him finish praying. And they literally pulled them off their knees and, um, you know, to, to, to get up and go into the balcony um, and stop praying. So they had had enough, Richard Allen and some of the other African-American members. And so they, they left. They stormed out. They said enough of that. And they started, you know, the African Methodist Episcopal Church, uh, which is a great denomination. And so that is really why um, the church, that's the, those are the historic reasons of why the churches are segregated. It's just, un, it's very unfortunate, but the history of racism in this country is the, the church, uh, I won't really say the body of Christ, but I'll say the church, um, you know, the institutional church is very much intertwined with that racism. Um, there were, there were so-called Christians against Martin Luther King, you know, and, um, there's a story, uh, a brother named Adolphus Weary wrote a book. Uh, he was one of the first black students at Los Angeles, uh, seminary. Uh, it was called like Los Angeles Baptist seminary or something like that at the time. But he wrote a book called, I ain't going back or I ain't coming back, I think. And he described how in the, in the sixties, he was one of the first black students. There were a handful of black students at the school. And this was a Christian evangelical school. And he was only there uh, because he played basketball and he you know, was recruited to play basketball. So they were lit. He was there with a couple other black students in his dorm room. The uh, day that Martin Luther King was assassinated. And uh, when when they're listening on the radio, I believe, and um, he and his his friends, his black friends are, you know, they're crying and they're praying and they're just distraught because of what happened to Dr. King. And outside in the hall, they heard uh, cheering from their classmates, cheering, laughing uh, and so on about the death of Martin Luther King. So, you know, we it's almost like a lot of times when we we talk about the church is segregated and, you know, that we have to have diversity in the churches. It's a, a lot of times we try to come at it with it from an ahistorical standpoint. This didn't just happen out of nowhere. There's a reason the churches are segregated. And it's because uh, heck, segregation for the first what? 300 some odd years of this country's history was legal. That was that was the government's order. That was the law of the land. And the church went along with it. Um, and so that's why the church are segregated. Now, jumping off from that, let me say this. I believe I don't have a problem if a church is all white or all black or all Asian or all Hispanic or multicultural, multiracial. Like I think one of the wonderful things about Christianity is the freedom we have in Christ. So your your church might be all one race because that culture may worship in a way that you really enjoy. So I can even take it away from race. There are certain churches that are called hip hop churches. Right. <laughs> You know, where you go and they have a DJ and he's scratching and, and, and <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah. everybody dresses kind of hip hop style. And, you know, it, there's nothing wrong with that. You you shouldn't look at that hip hop church and say, well, why don't y'all play country Western music? You know, why don't y'all sing hymns? You know, I mean, the one of the great things about our faith is the freedom we have in Christ to worship him in our own cultural expression. So if I want to go to an all white church because I like the the type of music that they have, I like the style of preaching. There's nothing wrong with that. 
If I want to go to an all black church and because I like the same thing, the music, I like the hooping and the style of preaching. There's nothing wrong with that either. The problem comes in where me as an African-American, if I go to an all white church, the problem is when they don't treat me like a brother. When they look at me funny, when I'm, you know, they blow me off or give me the cold shoulder um, or don't, you know, just don't allow me the same treatment as any other member regard who was white or vice versa. If a white person were to go to a black church and they get that type of treatment, that's where the problem is. So, again, and I'm not saying we I don't want or we shouldn't have multicultural churches either. Like I said, I think that's great, too. You know, I'm just saying it doesn't there, there's nothing inherently wrong with an all black or all white or all Asian or all Hispanic or all Native American church. You know, um, like I said, sometimes it may just happen because of cultural affinities or expressions or desires or things like that. Other times it happens just because of geography. I mean, if, if you're in, in an all white or virtually all white suburb or town, then your church isn't going to be diverse. <laughs> or if you're in the hood and it's all black, your church mo- is not going to be diverse so racially. So I, I just think if we really want to be honest and not just be politically correct. So when we have a discussion about diversity, these are the types of things that have to be discussed. Um, and and the part where I said, Yo, it's fine to have your all all white church. But when I go there, how am I treated? You know, when a, when a Hispanic couple goes there, how are they treated? Are they welcomed as brothers and sisters? You know, if that's the case, then I think it can be all good. And we can work together in, in many ways, uh, whether it's in church on Sunday or whether it's outside the church. Because, as you know, church doesn't end at one o'clock on Sunday. There's still a lot we can do together across racial lines. And Chris, you see, you bring up some great points in, and I'm glad that you made those distinctions because I think that will help us get a clear picture of how we're addressing this topic of diversity. Because as you're saying this, I, I know there are men out there who are listening say, okay, yeah, Joe, I, I go to a predominantly white church. I go to most of the men in our congregation or most of the people in our congregation are white or Latino, Asian or whatever, black. And they say, and yeah, we don't mistreat people from outside of our our race any different than we treat everybody in our church and they'll agree and they said yeah so i agree with what chris is saying so yeah there's nothing wrong with that but i'm talking about something even that and i'm glad that's why i'm glad you brought it up and because it's easy for us to say that because i go to predominantly white church and i'm not mistreated as an african-american man but i still see some things and then i go to my um friends in my black churches and i still see the thing they don't mistreat anybody but what I don't see is a relationship beyond the church. Does that make sense, Chris, what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah and yeah. to me, there's something systemically wrong with that is if we're going to be sharing heaven together <laughs> and I only see white people when I go to church, but yet I don't see them outside of church and vice versa. I'm going to a dominant black church and yeah, I treat if you're a white man, I treat you like royalty here, but I don't break bread with you outside of the church. And so my thing is how... I guess, and I, I'm trying to see how I can phrase the question because um, I'm trying to address it from that person who's saying, okay, yeah, Chris is right. We don't mistreat people at our church, so we're fine staying the way we are, but they don't step outside of their comfort zone. So I guess my question is this. Is it um, important beyond just good treatment of the, the congregants from different cultures, different races, as opposed to building re- authentic relationships even outside of the church? What's your, your view on that? Yeah, I mean... I look at the issue of racism in America uh, as a systemic and institutional problem, mainly. And there's a book, I think it's called Divided by Faith, um, by a, a white Christian brother about the church. And it's about how, you know, and, and, and how we, we as a church, as the American church, are divided by our race. And it talks about how black Christians uh, and view racism entirely differently than white Christians. 
and how black Christians tend to view it as more of a systemic uh, institutionalized problem. Uh, and white Christians tend to view it as an individual problem. And so, like you said, uh, a white Christian may say, well, you know, we have we have we have a black guy that goes to our church and we're, we're we, we, we treat, treat him great. <laughs> and we may even be friends. Like, yeah, I'm friends with him. Yeah. yeah, we go to his house for dinner after church and he comes to our house and it's all good. Um, and that is good. That That's a great there is an individual aspect to, you know, racism or prejudice um, that 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 scenario I just painted would be, you know, would be uh, solving that problem, I guess. But for a lot of African-Americans, we, we feel uh, that the issue is systemic. And so, you know, I think that's where a lot of churches miss the boat. I know black, I know African-Americans who go to predominantly white churches and they feel, you know, they obviously feel comfortable because they go there. They could go to a black church if they want it, um, but they they like the word, they like the worship and they like the people. But when when they have seen things like Trayvon Martin or, um, you know, uh, any of the other uh, Eric Garner, any of the you know, you just had this recent case with a, a member of the Milwaukee Bucks basketball team who uh, was tased. Sterling Brown, I believe is his name, was tased just in a routine traffic stop. I mean, it was a parking ticket. He was not giving the policeman any problems. He was just being obedient. And yet. They tased him. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and so there's another Thabo Cephalosha a couple years ago, played for the Atlanta, Atlanta Hawks. Same situation. He was just coming out of the club and uh, the cops, uh, there was a fight going on and he was just a bystander and the cops uh, beat him up and broke his part of his leg, his shin. And, um, you know, so when African-Americans see these things, I've talked to many that go to white churches and they're not addressed in the congregation. That's when they feel, OK, I, I don't know if I belong here, you know. Um, and so I, I believe that churches need to address the systemic racism. Again, it's not so much about individual prejudice anymore. It's about the systemic racism that can be, you know, you, you have to do some study. You have to do some reading. And, and most white Americans, I mean, the, the statistics show most white Americans grow up in segregated environments where it's virtually all white. They are the most segregated people in the country, according to surveys. Uh, I believe like 86 percent or something of whites um, don't hold me to that number, but I think that's what I read. Uh, grew up in all virtually all white environments. And so their interactions with the police or what they see with the police may be entirely different from what African-American males are experiencing in the hood or in the ghetto. So they can't fathom, you know, the police treating somebody like that, you know, and they just think, well, there must be something that he did or she did. And um, now we're seeing all on these videotapes and these phones and, and body cams and stuff, the brutality that is taking place. And to be honest, that's probably lessened over the years. We, we're only seeing it now because we uh, have these cell phones and body cams and stuff now. Uh, but imagine what was going on 15, 20, 30 years ago when we didn't have this type of technology. So my point is this, even if a church is predominantly one race, white, Asian, black, whatever, I still believe, and I think that's fine. I do believe that churches need to fellowship with other churches of other races. So my church might be all white. And I think we need to have some sort of fellowship with maybe an, an all African-American church. 
where maybe maybe it's a picnic once a year. Maybe it's, you know, we get together for a church service once a year or twice a year, whatever it might be. This pastor preaches at my church. I preach at his church. Um, but it needs to be more than just preaching. Like, that's why I said like a picnic or something or a barbecue. When they get to break so bread together. Yeah. Yeah. So there can be real interaction. And even there could even be real discussions, too. Because like I said, it could be a discussion about, you know, uh, the police and the African-American community where African-Americans could share some of their stories. Whites could be, um, you know, could could hear it and vice versa, because, you know, blacks, obviously, if whites hear the stories of blacks being mistreated, you know, I'm I, a good friend of mine who's famous. He's in sports broadcasting like me, but everybody would know him. He's, he's bigger than me, so, so to speak, more popular than me. He told me he could stop by the cops every once every six months. And they just for just to get stopped and they realize who he is and they're they, you know, they usually let him go. I mean, he hasn't done anything to be. stopped, But, you know, they usually are cool. Oh, it's you. OK, you know, we good. You know, I was with an NBA player for the Los Angeles Lakers a few years ago and we were just driving in his truck SUV and we got pulled over for no reason. Um, the cop pulled us over. We had tinted windows. He had LED lights on the bottom of, you know, the, the SUV. And the cop was just stumbling over a reason why did why that he stopped us. Like, he really didn't have a reason. But he's, oh, your LED lights were this or that and wasn't true. But you know what I mean? Like, so this is commonplace with some, you know, it happens a lot in the African-American community. So when whites can hear that story, then that can inform them and hopefully change their perspective on what they see happening in society and vice versa. If, if whites, if there's a dialogue, an open, real dialogue, not a politically correct one, not one where we all just trying to say the right thing. So we don't get accused of racism or whatever, where blacks can speak freely and whites can speak freely, you know, where a white person who says, well, I just don't think the police do things like that. Isn't going to be shouted down. Right. You know, but they if they can speak truly and honestly and they may share. Well, I just never, you know, every, my every interaction I've had with the police has been fine. I've even had interactions where I I, I got to be honest. I, I, I yelled at the cops. I asked for his badge number. I, I you know, I wasn't really a, a obedient and he didn't do anything to me. You know, he he just, you know, he gave me his badge number and, and I called his manager or his officer and it was fine. His lieutenant, you know, and, and so that uh, an African-American person might look at that and say, OK, I understand now why they don't believe us when we say there's brutality you know, or when we say we're being mistreated. But now that we've both so now that we've seen both perspectives, we might have a better understanding and we can work together in a better way to to address the problem. Um, but, it, it, you know, so you do need relationships. Um, yeah, and Chris, but let me interrupt you for a second, because because what you're talking about is is exactly about what society is, what we're struggling with in society, you know, and I'm pulling it back. Even I'm going to pull it in even more towards the church, because things that at least that I've noticed that concerns me and you've been traveling all over the country like I do. And um, I've spoken at a lot of men's conferences. OK, now we're getting out of society of dealing with the issues and because because those issues, like you said, need to be addressed without the emotionalism and have real dialogue. But there's this thing I call it the taboo thing that nobody addresses when I at least when I see it across the country, I go speak at men's conferences and I would go to a conference and I'm talking about one conference I went to. You're talking about twenty five hundred men. All right. And I go to another conference. Now, what I'm telling you about when I'm getting ready to go with this, I go to a conference and it is phenomenal to see that many men worshiping the Lord. They're from different churches, different congregations all over the country. And it's 99% white men. Are you following me? I go get on a plane and go speak at another conference. And you're talking about hundreds of men, all black, less than 1% 
white men. And we're dealing with men's issues. And I guess maybe I'm naive. I said, how is that even possible? How is that even given what our struggles are as men? Let's get race aside. Race doesn't discriminate when it comes to lust, temptation, pornography, anger. Are you following me? <laughs> when it comes to the issues that men face, struggling with finances, when it, dealing with our wives, dealing with our children. And I'm thinking, how is it possible that God can have a great move like that? And I don't see diversity. It, it seems like it, it has to be almost intentional for that to happen. And I'll even get more personal with you with this, Chris. Um, I was in a recovery group dealing with porn addiction and that kind of stuff for seven years. All right. Seven years. And it was in Tallahassee, Florida. You've been to Tallahassee. All right. Tallahassee, probably about 25, 30 percent African-Americans in that in that area. All right. So we're not talking about in remote areas. And through those seven years, I probably saw, I'm not kidding you, about 500 men go through that. No group bigger than maybe six at a time. So you're talking about men who start and never come back kind of thing. Over 500 men came through. I can count on one hand how many black men I saw. How is that possible? Is that a Christian recovery group? Um, no, it was a non-Christian recovery group. Okay. And But when I went to a Christian recovery group, which you're pr- pretty familiar with, Celebrate Recovery, Right. Christian, same thing. And my question is, how is that even possible in America? I think it's possible because, as I said, um, the church Christianity in America historically has been segregated. And so most uh, a lot of Christians, even, you know, they love the Lord and they're sincere but they their Christian experience is among all blacks or among all whites, you know, and I'm, I'm just focusing on these two groups because we're the two that have, you know, the major issues <laughs> you know, yeah. historically in this country. Yeah. But, so I think like when you speak at a men's conference and it's, you know, maybe it's put on by a white church. Chances are, if you saw what you saw and it's all white is that they were really only publicizing it, not necessarily on purpose, but just because these are the, the churches they fellowship are all white. So that's who they told about the conference. That's who they publicized. Well, now, here's about. a good example. Now, because I probably could say that among the, the black conferences that I've gone to, they tend to go to the churches that they're familiar with and invite black churches. But a couple of the white conferences I've gone to, I've sat on their their on their boards to see what they're doing. And they invited a lot of black churches. Are you following me? Yeah. And I still didn't see any, you know, and I saw you, you'll see very few black churches show up. I think that there is a distrust. Mm-hmm. There we go. Uh, among black Christians of white Christians. Uh, because, look, as I said, I brought I gave this story about Adolphus Weary, um, you know, the church, the evangelical church has, I mean, they were, a lot of them were against Dr. King. You know, it, we, we talk about this like it wasn't so-called Christians. You know, like these were the heathens and they just need the Lord. <laughs> right. But what about when people saying they got Jesus and they still racist and they still, you know, won't don't want to fellowship with you and don't want to give you, you know, your equal rights and things like that. That's historically. So I, I believe that I'm just going to be honest with you. Um, I believe that right now, 2018 for the first time in American history, and I'm not saying it started in 2018. It probably started a few years ago, but for the first time in American history, I believe white Christians need black Christians and other Christians of color because the the image, the brand, if you will. Right. There's a lot of talk about brand nowadays. What's your brand? Let me get my brand straight. The brand of the white evangelical church, rightly or wrongly, okay, is racist. That's just, I mean, people might get mad at that, but when you go on CNN, when you go on MSNBC, when you go on Fox, 
If it's a white evangelical, they are automatically written off as racist. The white mainstream writes them off as racist. And even black Christians who will agree with them theologically, who will go to the Christian bookstores and buy books by them and stuff like that, still don't they think they're racist, too. And that is why I think a lot of black churches probably don't go to some of these events. Now, let me say this. I spoke at an event in Los Angeles in 2017. It was put on by a white brother, Christian brother. It was a men's conference for all men. He had done several before. He's on radio. He had publicized on the radio and he had gotten hundreds of men and over a thousand men at the one before this one. Um, not, not advertised based on race or anything. Just men, let's come out, men of God, come out and let's seek the Lord. And he has speakers, a diverse group of speakers, white, uh, Hispanic and black. Now, it was at a black church in a black part of town, although black and Hispanic mainly part of town. Um, but it again, it was advertised to everyone. It was a nice church, a big church. There were 2000 men there. And it was about 65% black, maybe 60% black, 30% Hispanic, and about 10% white. And the white guy that put it together was distraught. Yeah, I can imagine. Because not he he purposely had it at a black church. And, and this pastor he refers to as his spiritual father. Because he believes there's a lot, this the white brother, he believes there's a lot of racism in the white church, so-called white church. And he told me that he was distraught because so many white men did not come. There were so few white men there. And I said, he said they didn't come because of racism. And I said, well, how many do you think would have? Well, he told me, he said, I got calls last night and this morning. From guys saying, I'm, I just can't make it. I just can't go. I was going. I just can't come. I just can't go to that part of town. And I said, well, I said, how many? And look, it's not the hood. It's a it's a suburb. OK. And I said, how many men do you think? How many white men do you think, you know, didn't come because of that? It's a white brother. And he said about five hundred. And so these are some of the issues we're dealing with. And um, I just, like I said, t- look, I'm going to be honest with you, Joe. I don't believe that you can be a racist and be a Christian. <laughs> Yo, I, just, yeah, yeah. Just, you know, I agree just, with you. Yeah, yeah. Like if I, if I, if I like am racist toward whites or Asians or any other race, I'm not a Christian. <laughs> And if you're racist or don't like blacks or or Indians or whatever, then you're not a Christian. You know? And now we can all have our little prejudices, you know, we and that that's just not race. That's just you know what I mean? Sometimes or your preferences. Yeah, I call them preferences. Yeah. People think prejudice and racism are the same. They're not the same. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You can have your preferences, whatever. Or, or even your, you know, because you experienced something, you may, you know, have a, a, a feeling toward a person or whatever. But the the extent that racism exists and has existed in America, no, you can't be that racist. You can't, you know, work to hold back a group of people uh, or hate a group of people or, you know, oppress a group of people and be a Christian. It's just not biblical. And so, I, I, I mean, I, 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 it's cliche to say people need Jesus. <laughs> but they, yeah, but they need Jesus. <laughs> but a lot of the people that say they got Jesus need Jesus. I know that's right, man. Amen. <laughs> you know, Chris, we're, we're running a little bit short on time, but I wanted to, to kind of um, get this in, squeeze this in if we can. Um, because, we, like I mentioned earlier, that we both uh, run um, para ministries that's outside of a church. And I guess what breaks my heart about this is that I've been in ministry now for three years full time doing this and I run several small groups. 
And when I say small groups, you know, typically I'm t- you're talking about four or five men's groups, um, not only um, here in my city, but also across the country. And if you remove me from the equation, you wouldn't know that a black man organized it because it's very diverse. And it wasn't anything I set out to do. Um, I was just being a Christian and it's become very diverse. You've been able to um, bridge those gaps. I know we have some pastors out there who are listening to this and they, they feel you, they hear you and they want to see something change. And yet they don't they can't seem to to get it to happen. Um, I wish I had a formula, but Chris, what would you say has been that has worked for you in being able to to um, bridge those gaps and cross those um, ethnic and cultural barriers? What have you been able to do that you've seen that has been working that maybe could benefit some other ministry leaders out there? Well, I'm going to be honest with me. Um, my position first at ESPN on television and now at Fox Sports on television that is really um, is what has opened up that platform is what has opened up my experiences with the racial diversity in the church, because people of all races see me on TV and, you know, like me because of TV. And um, so I, I get invited to speak at all types of churches. I get it. I, I mean, I, I, I think there are very few, I say this humbly, I think there are very few Christians that have the range of fellowship within the body of Christ that I have. Because even even a lot of times when you have a racially diverse conference, it still may just be Christians from that uh, branch of the faith. So you might have a bunch of charismatics of different races getting together, but there's no reformed people there. There's no, you know what I mean? There, there are no people from other strains of Christianity, or you might have a, a, a bunch of reformed people, you know, having a, a diverse conference, but there's no Pentecostals there. There's no charismatics there, you know? Um, and so I, I mean, I speak at, I've spoken at Catholic churches. I've spoken at Pentecostal churches. I've spoken at, you know, Baptist, uh, all white, Asian, Hispanic, multiracial, all black, you know, traditional black churches, white evangelical. It, it, it just runs the gamut. And um, and even Christian colleges. Um, but I think so. That's with, with me. That's what uh, I've experienced. Now, let me say this, because I know we are short on time. One, I think the church is going to take concerted efforts. It's not just going to happen. Okay, we have to make a concerted effort to have diversity in the body of Christ. And again, it doesn't necessarily mean every church is interracial, but it it, it could mean that we're fellowshipping with each other. We, We go out of our way to have fellowship and do things with churches that are that have people of other races in them, you know, so we can develop relationships and maybe work together. Um, now, I, I think I've spoken at Christian colleges. Mo- the Christian colleges I've spoken at uh, are virtually, other than Liberty, um, they're virtually all lily white. Only a handful of African Americans, which doesn't make sense when African Americans are the most "quote unquote" churched group in the country, <laughs> right? Right. And the reason I said before white Christians need black Christians It's because if we, if, if white evangelicals are really working as brothers, not as fathers, you know, not in a paternalistic way, but as brothers with black and Hispanic Christians and uh, Christians of other races, then that makes it more difficult to write them off as racist. And that could change their brand from being racist to, you know, being people viewing them more as just Christian, you know, and 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 taking heed to what they they're saying. Um, so I believe like the, a lot of these Christian colleges need to make a concerted effort to recruit students of color and not just basketball and baseball and football players, 
but they those colleges should should have a a huge uh racial you know co- people of color population because i've been around I, a christian i've heard from christian leaders white christian leaders one that everybody on your podcast would know i could mention his name i won't he said in a, a conference I was at, not a conference, it was a table with 12 of us. And he said, white people are leaving Christianity. It's a white Christian brother. He said Christianity is flourishing in Africa, in China, in South America, in the ghettos and inner cities of America, the black and Hispanic inner cities of America. It's white people who are leaving Christianity. And so... Hopefully we can reach white people for Christ, number one. But secondly, those who are in the body are going to be more and more need to be around their brothers who are black and Hispanic and of color. And and so um, I think we need to make concerted efforts to come together. Um, and I, let me say it this way. If we don't, it's either going to happen voluntarily or we're going to be forced to do. It. And it's beginning already. Like America is becoming more and more antagonistic by the day. Christianity. Yes, it is. Yeah. And and, and it, they're trying to legislate that we won't even be able to hold our beliefs that are historic Christian beliefs and morals. And so if we were to unite as the body of Christ across these racial and denominational and political and generational lines, that's a lot of people who still love the Lord and want to serve serving. And we could have an impact on the culture. If we don't come together and we remain segregated, then we're going to be forced. Eventually this, the culture is going to get so, so anti-Christian that we're going to be forced, we're either going to be destroyed as the body of Christ and we have to go underground like they do in certain other countries, or, you know, we're going to be forced to come together kind of like blacks were forced during segregation. And there was, you know, blacks worked together better in the 50s and 40s because we had to, because we were segregated and mainstream society pushed us out and wouldn't let us in. That could happen to the Christians and we could be forced to come together across these racial lines just because everybody else, we're outcasts. You know, Chris, I, I tell you, man, um, you're, you're right on point. Um, and it's just because what I'm hearing is intentionality. You know, I, I look at the, the groups that I work with. And like you said, when the diversity is real diversity for the fact that we're talking about I mean, I think the last time I took count, like over 20 different denominations uh, are part of our groups. And we don't always we don't agree on all 100 percent doctrine on everything. But we do, do believe in Jesus Christ crucified. And and what you did cover was great from an institutional standpoint, what we need to do. I'll even say from a, even from an individual standpoint, because it wasn't my intention to quote build diversity. But what I did focus on when I launched this ministry was focusing on what we had in common, which were our struggles as men. And that just attracted men. So the intentionality of saying, okay, I I could see the differences in us, but what do we all have in common? We all want to be great husbands. We all want to be great fathers and spiritual leaders in in our homes. We, you know, we want to do um, what God has called us to do. So, Chris, I think you did a, a great job of um, of giving us the bigger picture, and I wanted to bring it on home. But, Chris, um, I know you're a very busy man. If they wanted to get in contact with you and follow up with you and reach out to you, how could they do that? You can learn more about the King Movement at kingmovement.com. That's our website, kingmovement.com. You can reach me if you have questions about King or anything like that uh, at king at kingmovement.com. King at kingmovement.com. All right. And Chris, what we'll do, we'll make sure we put that in the show notes as well. So it'll be there for the men if they want to tap into that. And Chris, thank you so much for, um, for being so gracious with your time. I really appreciate you showing up on the show, man. Thank you so much. 
Thanks, Joe, man. I appreciate it. And guys, if you're out there listening, please do us a favor. And this is so important. Take about 30 seconds to go over to iTunes and rate the program for us. And let us know what you thought of my interview with Chris today. It's the best way to help us get this program in the hands, ears, and hearts of men just like you. And please don't keep us a secret. So share us with your friends. Guys, you have made us number one um, on the podcast and iTunes for Christian men. And we appreciate that. So keep on sharing and keep on downloading and reviewing it for us. And remember, we are males by birth, but we are men by choice. So each and every day, choose to be the man that God called and created you to be because a male is a terrible thing to waste. I'm Joe Martin, your man builder, telling you to stay strong, stay blessed, and as always, stay in his grip. Thank you for listening to the Real Men Connect podcast with Dr. Joe Martin. Real Men Connect isn't just a podcast. It's a mission, ministry, and movement to help good men become the great men God called and created us to be. And the best is yet to come. So if you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and leave us a review in iTunes. It really helps us to build the podcast and to reach, teach, and impact more men, all for the glory of God. And make sure you check out realmenconnect.com to get our free tools and resources to help you go from good man to great man God's way. Again, that's realmenconnect.com. Thank you for listening. We'll see you in the next episode. Real Men Connect is a listener-supported podcast, and we're now the number one radio podcast on iTunes for Christian men. If this podcast has blessed you in any way and you'd like to help us continue to bless and transform the lives of even more husbands, fathers, sons, and leaders, please prayerfully consider supporting this ministry. Just go to realmenconnect.com and click on the donate button. And may God bless your faithful giving.